0: What's up ninjas and ninjats. Welcome to another episode of the Exposure Ninja digital marketing podcast. My name's Tim. I'm head ninja at Exposure Ninja and best selling digital marketing author. This show is all about helping you to generate more leads and sales through your website. And in this episode, I'm so proud to bring you Annie Brooking. Now Annie is a product marketing guru. She has been working in Silicon Valley, launching products over there. She's worked in some super technical businesses, launching medical products. She's been a CEO, she's been a lecturer. She is an absolute knowledge bank of info on how to launch a product successfully in the marketplace. She's also a client of Exposure Ninja, so she has impeccable taste. So, in this episode, I ask Annie about how to launch, relaunch a product or a business. Now, a lot of small businesses, particularly small and medium sized businesses can launch a product kind of accidentally, they launch it because they're passionate about it, or because they've got some competency in a particular area, and they don't do much market research before they do it. So Annie's approach is completely different. And she takes us through exactly what you need to do if you're going to be launching a product into the marketplace. Or if you've got a product out there, which isn't getting traction, let's run through this process and then relaunch it. So fantastic interview. Annie's, well, fantastic answers. I'm not going to say the interview is fantastic because I did it, but fantastic answers, fantastic knowledge from Annie. I love talking to her. Every time we talk on the phone, I get so much knowledge. So um, really, really good stuff. Don't forget, if you want some help with your digital marketing, if your website's not really doing what you need it to, and you're getting a bit fed up with that, then you can request a free marketing review from Exposure Ninja. So go to ExposureNinja.com and click that big green button and request a free review from the team. And what will happen is one of the ninjas at Exposure Ninja will review your site. They'll review your digital marketing, where your site is showing up online. They'll also have a look at your competitors as well, see what they're doing, any tricks that you can copy from them or holes that you can exploit. And they'll put together a full plan for you that you can follow over the next six to 12 months to increase the sales that your site generates. It's completely awesome, this review, and it's completely free of charge as well. There's no obligation to use our services. It's just a kind of way for you to test drive us, I guess, um, and for us to test drive you too. So go to explosioninja.com if you want to request that. Anyway, without further ado, enjoy the episode with Annie Brooking from Magic Monkey. Annie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Delighted.
0: Awesome. So we've been working together for a while and uh, talking for a while, haven't we? You've got an incredible background, um, loads of experience in big corporates and working with smaller companies as well. Maybe you could give us a a quick kind of uh, bio. Uh,
1: Sure. I'm a computer scientist by background, and I uh, was an academic for several years and started my own artificial intelligence laboratory in the 80s and ran that for a few years. Uh, Went to Silicon Valley, uh, was a lucky girl, worked for Eric Schmidt when he was at Sun Microsystems and spent a a few years in the Valley and I turned into a a product marketing person in the Valley. Returning to the UK, I've been a chief exec for about 20 years of high technology companies and have written uh, three books. Uh, My latest is Dream Ticket. Perhaps I'll yes. do a little ad for Dream Ticket. And um I know you, of course, Tim, because um I needed a, a website and you built it for me.
0: <laughs> I didn't personally build it, but the ninjas built it, yeah. I the won't ninjas. take credit for that. <laughs> awesome. Um the world of product marketing, and I, I know one of the conversations that we had earlier is we both talk about marketing. But our definitions are slightly or, or, or the components of it are slightly different, are they? Because The podcast listeners who are used to thinking about marketing are thinking digital marketing. And your product marketing is, is kind of much wider ranging, isn't it, really? It's all about the strategy of bringing a product to market.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, what, um, what I have is a methodology that I've developed over the years um, for looking at uh, a product and how it's going to be launched into the market, who the customer is, and also I design its life cycle. So this process is called, um, I call it a MRD, which is a market requirements document. And it forces you to think through exactly what you want to do with the product, who's going to buy it, why they're going to buy it, uh, and, and so forth. And I've developed this methodology over the years. I've brought 19 high-tech products to market so far. And of course, they're all different. And so every time I bring a new product to market, I add a little bit more to my MRD um, because uh, it's the learning learning curve. But strategic product marketing is is probably one of the most interesting jobs you can have in a company. And quite frankly, once you... Done that job, you're you're on your way to be a chief exec because it forces you to touch every aspect of the of the product uh, when you're thinking about how you're going to launch it or it even if you should launch it and bring it to market.
0: So a lot of people who are listening will have launched businesses and those businesses will have had products, so they will have been through the product or service launch process. But the typical approach. I guess many would take is let's say that I'm a I'm going to create a SaaS product. So I might have some expertise in a particular area, I decide to get something developed. Um, I start working with a development company to do that. When it's finished, I start sending it out to people and seeing what's happening. And I may or may not get some traction. And then from there, I kind of iterate and go, I might add different features over time. And we take this very kind of step by step process, it's very slow, there's no overarching strategy, there's no big bang launch. It's very organic in the sense, you know, when people use sometimes people mean organic, and they mean organic, sometimes people say organic, and they just mean slow. <laughs> so what's wrong with that approach? Or, or what is it missing from the approach that, that you take and your framework users?
1: The, the major, the major problem with doing it that way, especially if you are a technical person, is that uh, quite a lot of technical people have a notion of what the market ought to be doing by way of solving a particular problem. And so they build a piece of software that they think ought to do the job. And unfortunately, sometimes, quite a lot of the time, when it gets to the customer, customer says, well, actually, I don't really want to do it that way, uh, and I don't want a piece of software to tell me what to do in the first place. And so, and and so, what I do is I do it the other way around. So before a single line of code would ever be written, I would build a data sheet. It was the very first thing I would do, and that's a document which is in English, as opposed to being a technical spec, and it lists who 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 the customer is, and what the product does, not necessarily how it does it, but what the product does, what are its features, and what are its benefits, and what are the three reasons the customer should buy it. And then I go and talk to customers and say, give them this data sheet. And I say, well, if we built this product, would you buy it? And um, typically, they would say, I don't believe you can do that, uh, and that is bad news because it means you're probably doing something fairly disruptive. Or they might say, um, "Yeah, it won't be quite nice, but I don't really need it," which means that you're going to have a struggle selling it. Or they might bite your hand off and say, "Absolutely, where can I have it?" And so it, it's it's like a pre-sales process that I go through, and and quite frankly. I have had purchase orders signed by the customer who will say, uh, "Yeah, if you build that product in this time frame with those features and those benefits at this price, I will buy it." Wow! So it's uh, it's great. It, it's that's how I do market research. I just go sell it. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. I love that approach. So you start with the audience and the problem and the solution rather than I I'm into whatever I'm into photography, so I'm going to go and be a photographer, you would start with, I've identified that there's a particular need amongst this group of
1: people, right? Absolutely, there's nothing that a marketing person hates more than the R&D department, dreaming up something, and then they chuck it over the wall. And the poor old marketing person has to try and flog it to whoever they can. And unfortunately, that happens an awful lot, awful lot. So the thing to do is to do it the other way. It's much easier selling to somebody who has a problem and they know they have a problem and they want a solution for it than trying to convince someone that they've got a problem when they really don't want to hear that they have.
0: If somebody put you between... The people who go on to Dragon's Den and the show, the dragons would have so much less to filter because this seems to be the main problem that the businesses go into there that get ripped to pieces is they haven't really thought of this stuff. They've just had an uh, idea in the shower, they've gone out and built it, and then the dragons basically are just going through some variation of this, identifying that either it doesn't meet the need, it's unbelievable, or it's solving a problem that nobody actually really cares about.
1: I'm afraid that is that, that really is true. Um, and, you know, even I've had clients in, in my business where I have done this data sheet process and have gone out and done a, a number of interviews with potential customers. And they've said, well, yeah, that looks really cool. But do I really need it? Be kind of nice to have, which means it's going to be difficult selling it. And the client's still gone ahead and built the thing, actually. And guess what? Doesn't sell, you know. Surprise! Surprise.
0: <laughs> so okay, we've 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 identified that the audience comes first. Um, there are going to be people listening who are maybe thinking of a, a, a solution or a product. How do you identify what the perfect audience is like? Because you could go as big or as small as you want. Like, how do you even start to think about that? And how deep do you go on profiling them? Um, I
1: think getting the There's two things that you have to get. There's the customer. In my process, I've got something like 40 steps that I go through. So it's quite detailed. But the two key profiles that you have to have, one is the customer profile. And that's the guy who's going to buy it. This is the guy who's going to pay money for it. And then you've got the user profile. And this is the person who's actually going to use the thing. And they are very frequently not the same person. And if you're, building components for example if you're building chips or something like that then um, you need to look at the end user as well so you might be a chip company that's making a particular kind of chip and you might be selling that to somebody who makes uh, a radio system but then you also need to look at the person who's going to be using the radio system look to see how they're going to use it what the environment is going to be that they're going to use it in. And in particular, if it fits into their workflow. So if it doesn't fit into the, the way they do their job, they're not going to use it.
0: Yeah, and, and fitting into that workflow ties in, I think, to something I've seen you mention in um, in one of your presentations about user stories. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, what are user stories and, and why are they so por- important? And maybe you could give us an example of a, a, a user story that you've created or that you've seen in, in the world.
1: Um, a a user story, I, I think of it as like a little cartoon strip. Uh, and so if, um, let me th- let me let me think on my feet here. So if, for example, you were the product, let's say the product was a system that took a photograph of a woman's face, and by analyzing that photograph, determine the age of her skin. And so, um, great proposition, actually, because if the woman is 40 and it tells her that her skin age is 50, she's going to start buying products to make her look younger. And that's what this particular system actually did. Um, and so the user story would be um, where, where the customer would sit where would they be in a beauty spa or a beauty salon? Um, how the beautician would would take that photograph and how she would walk the customer through the consultation and introduce the customer to the product that she would buy um, after the skin analysis. So, if if it um, you know sometimes for example uh, this, the the system might be too big, it might not fit into the salon, for example, or they might have little portable trolleys that they move their gear around and this would not fit on it as it would wobble and fall off. And so it's, it's looking at, at the, the physical environment and also the steps that someone would go through when they were using that particular product.
0: Right. So this allows the business owner to kind of envisage someone actually using the product. So I'm just trying to think of, let's say that someone's listening and they run a SaaS company, for example. Um, This would be them imagining the user using this, this piece of software. And I guess the user story would give them a sense of how much time they're willing to spend to find the information that they need or... Um, what the kind of desired outcomes from the software would be that they're, they're just trying to get a sense of it's almost like you're doing user testing but in your head is that ballpark
1: yeah you you're you're sort of modeling it mm. um i mean some, sometimes it it can be even silly things like um, i did bring a product to market that was on um, a sewage plant not very not very romantic <laughs> actually and um and you know if if guys are on a sewage plant, they're supposed to wear gloves for fairly obvious reasons, I suppose, and masks and things like this so that you know they, they don't get um, sewage in, in their eyes and all the rest of it. And so then um, it's not terribly convenient to be having a keypad in an environment like that right next door to a, a sewage plant. So um, do, do you see what I mean? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So
0: we're overcoming those hurdles that might exist further down the line. That makes total sense. Um, Next thing I wanted to ask you about was the concept of an MVP, minimum viable product. We get sent websites that are presented to us as MVPs all the time. And um, the the question I often have for the person is, is about the V like, the minimum viable product can sometimes be used as a very lazy way to pass off something which is incredibly average, and it doesn't really uh, represent anything of any value to the user whatsoever. Um, what's your take on MVP, and in how different is it to the kind of Silicon Valley Eric Reese MVP that we've all come to, uh, to to know and maybe love, maybe not? <laughs>
1: This what what I do in order to try and determine the MVP is I actually do that in the customer interview right at the beginning when I've got the data sheet. So, for example, I would have a list of all of the features, and I would ask the uh, customer to rank the features in order of I would probably say um, absolutely don't care about it, absolutely essential. That'd be nice, you know, or wow is sometimes one of my columns in doing this. And I get the customer to score each of these or rank each each one of these. Um, and sometimes um, they will say, well, one of the things we have to have in this is a feature that you've not actually thought of putting on your list. And so I would try and tease those out there. The major challenge actually then is trying to um, convince the engineering group that the MVP can be launched without every bell and every whistle that they would quite like to put in it. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes that's – sometimes with software, of course, that's much easier because you can have multiple releases over a period of time. Um, with hardware, you have to future-proof it so that um, – so that perhaps um, extra features can be added later, and the kits already there to do that. But um, I, I would do that right at the right at the very beginning.
0: That's really interesting. And I guess your your, your MVP is created with customer information. So it's actually guided by the customer rather than someone saying, I've got an idea for something, I'm just going to knock something up crap and then just see if people like it. You're, y- you've got that piece before anyway, haven't you? So you know that it's going to be a hit because you've literally just built what they've asked you to build.
1: Um, yes, yes. And mind you, sometimes there is a bit of a chicken and egg in here. Because uh, also, if you go to a customer, and you say, what would you like? They typically don't know. So you do have to have some form of straw man um, so that they, they can react to it. Um, it's unfortunate, actually, because if you go to the customer and say, what would you like? They very frequently say, well, what have you got? Or what can I have? Rather than actually tell you what they would would really like. So you do have to have a straw man. And typically, the, the doing the user stories and the data sheet, should pick that box, and it's a this exercise to build an entire um mvp is a document basically and you know for me um takes something like 20 man days from from zero from get from get go from knowing nothing but if you think about the development time of you know a product which is months years uh sometimes it's significantly cheaper to, to do it on paper than it is to actually build a thing and then discover that nobody really wants it.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, a 20 day process that allows you to test your your idea in the marketplace and get feedback and specify what the MVP needs to include is a fantastic deal. <laughs> we, we've we got clients who spend 20 days replying to an email. <laughs> um, Okay, that, that, that's, that's really interesting. I, Uh, That kind of ties into a a question. I know uh, earlier you mentioned disruption um, in a kind of negative way. And that going to the customer and saying, what do you want? It's the old Henry Ford thing, isn't it? They just say uh, uh, a faster horse, whereas he wanted to completely disrupt that marketplace. So you earlier mentioned disruption as a kind of bad thing. What's the fine line between... Being too disruptive, so that you're having to introduce something completely new. But actually, first, why is that a bad thing? Why is that s- sort of extreme disruption a bad thing? Because we're always told that we should go into a marketplace and completely disrupt it with a a new solution.
1: My my experience of bringing disruptive products to market is is quite quite different. Um, in my in my questionnaire, if I've I've got um, have to have Uh, nice to have don't need it i always have a column there which which says don't believe it so if he if he if the customer says um i don't believe you can do that when you build the product he will insist on having it for free or having a trial or whatever Mm. and um and that can actually go on for months and so you You can be in a position, and I have been many times actually, where you have to prove to the customer that the product really does do what it says on the can before he will uh, buy it. And um, depending upon the industry, that can take a very long time. So if you're you're trying to sell a product into the wastewater industry, for example, that can take years, you know, uh, years. And even sometimes when you actually, and I have had this experience too, even when you give them all the data and, and prove beyond, you know, all doubt that it does do what it says on the cam, I have been in a situation where the customer has said, well, I still don't believe you can do it. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so it does take, and of course, what it does is it prolongs the sales cycle. It, it's the bad news when, when that kind of thing happens.
0: There obviously needs to be enough of a difference between what's already out there and what you're bringing or what you're suggesting. So how do you know whether something is, I don't know, like what's what's the minimum level of iteration? I suppose that's difficult to answer in a blanket way, but how, how do we know that we've got something different enough to what's out there that that people will actually buy it without it being so disruptive they don't believe it?
1: Um, that's a difficult. That's a difficult question, actually, um, because sometimes customers decide they they don't believe it, and there's just no changing their mind. Um, I did, in fact, bring to market a melanoma scanner uh, several years ago, and it was a very, very clever product, and what it did was it took a photograph of a a mole or or your skin and um, would look at the blood and the melanin and collagen in your skin by measuring the refracted light against a mathematical model of the skin. It was very, very clever. But at the time when when we first launched it, the doctors would say, well, I don't believe that's a measure of collagen. You know, I don't believe that is a measure of the blood. And it's quite difficult to prove to them without actually chopping bits out of people, and which ultimately ha- had to happen, actually, in order to measure. Yeah. Um, and if they just decide not to believe it, you're really stuck, actually.
0: Did you get that product? To, did, did you make that product a success? And how did you? if so, how did you overcome that?
1: Uh, that product did get to market and it w- was a success. And in the end, it had a, an enormous number of uh, trials and learned papers, I think something like 60 papers right. with in, from independent doctors saying, you know, yes, we've trialed this. And yes, it does work. Yeah, but then that takes a lot of time and a lot of money to do that.
0: So I guess the equivalent in a digital marketing Uh, world would be, if you've got a product which is significantly better than everything else on the the market, let's say on Google, um, you need to back it up with videos and clear images of it doing the thing that you're claiming and loads of credibility, testimonials, reviews, that type of stuff. So you're looking for kind of third party validation of your claims, really, that's what we're saying.
1: Absolutely, always. Um, And um... Interestingly, with, med- with something like a medical product, for example, um, there are certain very high-profile consultants that, that probably don't ever pay for products because their, their validation is so important. The um, medical device companies give them their kit for free in order for them to test it and, um, and evangelize. Yeah,
0: Influences. Once
1: a- yeah, once again, that takes time. And
0: budget yeah to, to do that I want to ask about branding huge topic uh, mm-hmm. podcast episode on it on its own but um, how how should people think about branding their products when that you know wh- when do they start thinking about that stuff is this something that they're running past the users in the the user testing and, and the feedback process
1: um Branding, uh, yes, I think so. Branding is actually uh, a key asset for a company, um, which I do talk about in my book, actually, Dream Ticket, because it's an intangible asset mm. that's very valuable uh, to a business. So a large number of these intangible assets are valuable these days. Um, and um, I would typically also do that at, right at, at the beginning uh, if you like, um, rather than picking the name at the end. Because, uh, of course, as you know better than anybody, uh, your whole branding strategy has got to be supported with your di- digital media strategy and all of the – it's very hard thinking up good brands these days and, and good names these days, actually.
0: Got to be able to um, get the domain.
1: <laughs> you do indeed. There's a There's a company in San Francisco that has – built a wonderful uh guide which i think you can still get from their website which is called hugo and it's uh it's a, a guide to naming products and it, it it tells you all the the things that you you ought to be doing when you're thinking about a brand but also tells you what you know what is what is a good brand or what is a good name or what is a bad name um and uh i always i always think about um, my husband's a builder actually. And I always think about the names that I see on white vans as they drive around in the UK because it's gonna be A and B plumbing or K and H you know scaffolding or something, which are not particularly memorable names no. actually.
0: I was talking about my wife literally yesterday evening as we were walking, we passed it was like K L H plastering on the van. What what an opportunity to set that business apart. What are you getting from that? You can't even remember what the initials are. It's terrible.
1: No, unfortunately, um, it's it's a sort of hobby of mine now to look at white vans and look at names that are on the side and and God bless them to a man they're dreadful.
0: I've got a call after this podcast episode actually with a, a, a boiler engineering company called Boiler Boffin, which I think... As plumbing and heating companies go, it's not two bags, it tells you what they do. And it tells you that they're pretty good at what they do as well. I think
1: Don't I think that's, that's quite good. I like I'd like I like that. And it's a double B as well, which which in this Hugo naming guide, anything that, you know, is is rhythmic, like Google or Skidoo, or all of these names are memorable as well. Yeah,
0: magic monkey.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Indeed, magic
0: monkey. It's one of the things that first stood out was uh, the, the pink and white and the magic monkey logo. I think it's, it's brilliant. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank anyway.
1: you. My favorite color.
0: <laughs> Um, Right. Let's talk about risks and product launches that don't go well. What are some of the pitfalls that you're kind of trying to avoid? What are maybe some of the pitfalls that you fell into early in your career, which you now watch out for?
1: I think product launches, um, they frequently cost quite a lot of money. And um, I think key thing is to get get the entire team on the same script. Um, I have been to product launches where different members of the team have jumped up and have referred to the product in a different way, five or six people referring to it as something quite different so one of the key things i think i always do is um is to have a very limited set of vocabulary that is is used in the launch and that limited set of vocabulary everybody has to use and it goes on the website it's used on the data sheet uh, it's it, it's it's everywhere so some people don't call it an app or an application or a piece of software or you know so it's just one thing um and of course um Getting the website audited, which of course is what one of the things you do. Um, So I always recommend everybody get their website audited before um, they do a product launch. Once again, to ensure that the the jargon is is consistent in all all of the product literature. Um, I think um, when I worked in the states, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to, you know, to spend many hundreds of thousands of of, of dollars on on a product launch, um, which of course can take a year or so to plan. Um, but obviously, quite a lot of companies do, don't have uh, large budgets for things like that. So I think you have to try and do something which is memorable, yeah, and that people want to come to, yeah. So you have to have a, a, a pull of some kind in your in, in the people that are presenting at your product launch so that people want to come and remember it and have it somewhere sensible. Um, somewhere where you can park the car, for example, is always a good idea. Um, and I've, into I've, product launches where the venue is fabulous, but no one can get to it. Right. You can't park within miles of the place. Um, so you have to take all of these things into consideration. I think I've got, got a list of 10 things somewhere on my website that you have to consider before you do a product launch.
0: Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. What's what's in in your opinion? What's been the most uh, technically fantastic product launch that you would say? Right, that ticks all the boxes. I'm thinking something like iPhone. Is that or is that Steve Jobs is so charismatic it kind of overshadowed and they missed out a bunch of stuff?
1: I think uh, obviously Steve Jobs was awesome and he was just a master at doing these launches. Um, I've never been to one of his launches, unfortunately. I just missed out on being one in San Francisco when it was the, um, the Mac. Actually, I missed out on that one. Oh, wow. But he makes it look so easy is, is the wonderful thing about um, Steve Jobs. Is that you don't really, I don't know. I'm sure somebody will will tell me how many times he practiced doing those scripts. But it it was effortless. It always looked effortless, you know. So, so Yeah. That nobody comes close, I
0: don't think. <laughs> I heard that he, you know, he staying up really late night the, the night before, like preparing and, and forcing people to, you know, work on iterations of the software and stuff. It seems crazy. I'd be like, get at least 12 hours sleep before one of those. <laughs> yeah. I, I love going back and watching the, for example, the iPhone product launch because... When you watch a more recent product launch, I find myself getting sucked into the technology and sucked into what the thing actually does. Whereas if you watch something old where you're completely familiar with the product, and in fact, the product looks a bit basic, it's like going back and looking at ads for cars, which are now on the scrap heap. You see the ad for what it is, you see the, you see the, te- the technique around it, I guess, and you see the theatre without getting sucked into the magic of the product. Does that make sense? <laughs>
1: Um, not quite sure. <laughs>
0: okay, it's just, just what I like to geek out on YouTube while I'm eating my food. <laughs> you talk about critical success, success factors uh, to a product launch. How do you identify
1: them? Well, once again, with the customer at this initial, uh, these initial interviews that you do. So, um, you know, the customer, will, if, you're, if you're proposing to bring a, a product to market, uh, you know, if it doesn't integrate with another piece of software that they're using, for example, that would be a no brainer. I'm not going to buy it. Um, also critical success factors uh, in many industries are standards uh, so you have to comply with uh, obviously in the medical in- industry fDA approval and medical device directive and all this kind of business. Um, but people um I have actually brought a product to market where the customer base felt that it ought to comply with a certain standard that it, that, that it couldn't comply with, it was not ever able to comply with and could never comply with. But once the customer had it in his head that it ought to comply, um, I'll, I'll tell you what the example is. It, it is um, a piece of laboratory equipment that um, the food industry decided it needed to be UCAS accredited. But um, it isn't a piece of kit that's UCAS accredited. It's the laboratory itself. But once these chaps got it into their head that the kit has to be UCAS accredited, we couldn't sell it to them because it it couldn't be it was impossible for it to be. Yeah. Wow. And that yeah, that was unpleasant. So we had to get out of that, that, that market. Yeah.
0: So did you figure that out before you start before you took it to market?
1: Unfortunately, I didn't because mm. I was specifically looking for unregulated markets. And it was an unregulated market, yeah. actually, but the uh, customer wanted a pick box mm. for it. Yeah. So, no, it's, it wasn't regulated. And no matter how many gurus would, would write on this subject, that we paid them to write on this subject and point out to the industry that it, it not only. Couldn't, but it didn't need to. But um, once the customer, once the customer has it positioned in his head that it, it needed to be accredited, you won't shift it. Yeah. It's a,
0: yeah. I guess the importance of getting in there early, and uh, well, I, I suppose that also explains why strong positioning is so effective. Because when you've got that position in their head, you're not going to shake it, positively or
1: negatively. I guess. That, that's actually something we don't do very well in Europe. It's, um, as, as you know, the, the original book on positioning was written, written a very long time ago, but more than 20 years ago, by um, a guy called Al Rees and his collaborator, Jack Trout, uh, called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. And it's about how to get that one message to the customer's head so that when he hears the name of your product, he thinks this one thought, hopefully a favorable thought, um, and that's the positioning. It happens in the mind of the prospect. And once um, so if, if, the, if this positioning is not favorable, if he thinks your product is flow, too expensive, old, mm-hmm. uh, you won't sell it. And, and we, I spend a lot of time doing positioning. In um, in the marketing of, of products and getting the positioning statement that I want the customer to think to match with the branding and the and the trademarking and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together uh, for me to do that.
0: So talking about that that statement that you want people to believe when they when they hear the name of the product. So we had that recent fiasco with Gillette changing their their slogan from. The best a man can get, or whatever they changed it to, is that their positioning statement is that the, the the thing that they've been trying to link into everyone's heads, and that's why changing it made everyone go what?
1: Yeah, exactly, um, e- exactly. Because if the if the customer is thinking the best a man can get when he hears the name Gillette, what? Why would? Is is perfect positioning? Why would you change it? You know, why would? why would anybody want less than the best I could get? Um, so so yes, it, it wouldn't be a good idea to do that. And some of these positioning statements are very, very old, you know, like Green Giant, you know, ho ho ho, Green mm-hmm. Giant. Um, and so, you know, they're quite, um, they're very powerful, very powerful. Yeah.
0: There's no benefit statement. There's no benefit to ho ho ho, Green Giant, right? So how it, 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 would there be uh, a phrase underlying that like you want i always think of the, the corners like salty and crunchy right is, is that something that they'd be conscious of or or, or not really would they be trying um, to drum that into my head
1: i wouldn't have thought so i w- uh, and and it not only the that's also the jingle uh, for obviously yeah jingle um and uh i think in in general, the, the mind only, when it comes to positioning, has very small capacity. So it's got to be something very short and, and very punchy. Um, like Intel Inside, which they don't even bother saying. They haven't bothered saying Intel Inside for years and years and years because it's, it's just two, you know, that, those little, is it five notes or four mm. notes? I'm, you're a musician. How many <laughs> notes? Is it? I don't know.
0: I think it's four. Da, 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 da. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just uh I was just reading about apparently the uh, the audio hooks are gonna be more important now that everyone's doing kind of video and audio content on podcasts and stuff. Carrie V's going big on it. Um this has been absolutely fascinating, and anyway, know. absolutely I love talking to you. Um you got so much experience and I yeah, I just I love sucking out the info from your brain. <laughs> Um, if you could much. If you could leave listeners with one parting final piece of advice on how to make sure that either their product launch or their business launch is a success, what would it be?
1: test it with the customer before you spend any money. Write the data sheet, you know talk to the customer and ask him if you'll if he'll buy it if I say so if I build if I build this product for you at this price with these features, will you pay me X pounds or dollars for it? Um, because, quite frankly, you only need about 10 of those interviews with customers and, and you'll have a very, very good picture of, of what your product's going to do in the marketplace or not. As, as mm.
0: I've got a theory on why people don't do this more often because they're scared of rejection. They're worried that people will say they don't want it.
1: Um, yes, maybe, maybe, but that would, um, I mean, obviously the job of a good marketing person is, is to, is to go back to the team and say, I don't think anybody's going to want it. And of course the team, especially if it's a technical team that've spent years researching something, you know, they, it's their baby, isn't it?
0: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) They're not going to like you. (laughs) Annie, where can people find out more about you? Of course, by the book and also the cards your dream ticket cards they're amazing
1: my yeah my bizviz card deck yes yeah there we go which is uh, another planning tool but my uh website is um www.magicmonkey.eu and um there are several downloads that you can get from that um from that site and the book uh, dream ticket is available from amazon
0: Awesome. So you can go on to Amazon and search for Dream Ticket or Annie Brooking and they will find it. That's right. Annie, thank you so much for your time today. Very, very much appreciated. And thank you everybody for tuning in.
1: Thank you. Good fun. Thank you very much, Tim.